First Chronicles chapter one. We'll look a little bit there, but we're going to we're going to kind of skip around uh, in First Chronicles. So, First Chronicles is a um, it's it's kind of a repeat of Second Samuel, where David is reigning. We'll see that as we go through tonight. So, I'm not going to look at a lot of the the uh, details about David's reign so much, but we'll look at some things that are included. Now, remember, we said in our study. Um, as we, as we started and as we've been going through it, that there are, um, uh, in First Second Samuel, First Second Kings, First Second Chronicles, it's kind of like with the four Gospels. There are times where, so Second Samuel and First Chronicles are parallel. And like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each of them give uh, a lot of times the same event. You'll see a different viewpoint. The Holy Spirit uses a writer to include... Um, details that another writer does not. Well, it's kind of that way with these books, although uh, you don't have four accounts, you have two. So 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles, um, they record the life of, uh, of King David. Now it does have, even though Saul's reign ends in 1 Samuel, there is one chapter only about Saul in First Chronicles, we'll get we'll see that in just a moment. But from chapter eleven on to the end, chapter twenty nine, there are twenty nine chapters uh, in in uh, on our GPS there for First Chronicles. Um, most from that point on, it's all about David's reign. So that parallels back with Second Samuel. So there are twenty nine chapters, and as we said, there's a a theme. Sometimes it's a word or two words or a phrase, and the the, the theme for this book is God reigns. God. Uh, was reigning uh, through King David over his people the way that he could not do with Saul. Saul was rebellious. Saul, he a lot of times he went against what God told him to do. And uh, even though David was a man that failed God and disobeyed God, as we'll look at a quick review tonight, um, he was a man after God's own heart. And God used him greatly as the second king of Israel. Uh, and he reigned for 40 years. So this is about the reign of King David for the most part. So the date of 1 Chronicles is parallel to, to roughly parallel to 2 Samuel that we looked at. So just a quick breakdown, just to put it in three real basic sections. Chapters 1 through 9, there are a lot of, there, there, those chapters are genealogies. Now when you read through the Bible, there's, uh, we'll see um, a list of some more in just a moment uh, towards the end. When you read through the Bible and you get to these genealogies, you're tempted to just skip them because the names are hard to pronounce. But there are actually some things in these genealogies that help us in a lot of ways. It helps us understand how God puts it all together. Uh, especially in the Old Testament here from Genesis, we'll look at in just a moment. And then also, um, there are some people mentioned in these genealogies where it'll give a little blurb about them that you would have never known about them. In fact, there are, there's one of those we'll look at tonight in, in this passage. So chapters 1 to 9 are genealogies, and they may seem kind of boring, but read through them, and the more you read through them, it'll help you in pronouncing the names as you read through them. And then in chapter 10 is the reign of King Saul. It, it sums up 1 Samuel in one chapter of Saul's reign, really just talks about his death pretty much uh, in chapter 10. And then 11 to 29 is the reign of King David, and that's the remainder of the book. So we get over to, uh, in just a moment, we'll come to chapter 11 and see uh, David's reign. But start with me, if you will, in chapter 1 for just a moment. Let's read through a few things here in chapter 1. It simply begins with a name, because this is a genealogy, like I said, for the next nine chapters. 
And it begins with one name, and that is Adam. Adam is the, the first man created, Adam. And then, of course, Eve was created from his rib, from his side, from his rib, and was made to be his helpmeet in the Garden of Eden. But we see the genealogy beginning with Adam up to this point. When you, when you just scan over the next chapters to chapter 9, it, it gets us all the way to the point of the 12 tribes of Israel. So when you read through there, you see at the beginning Adam... Sheth, or it's also Seth, but uh, is his name in Enosh, or that's also Enoch. Now, there are two different Enochs in Genesis. Don't worry, I'm not going through all these names tonight. Uh, there are two Enochs in Genesis, but he had a, a grandson named Enoch, but there was another Enoch as well. And then it lists down through, and then you see verse 4, Noah and his sons. And of course, uh, it, well, then it begins to break down in the next several verses the uh, descendants of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. It begins with Japheth in verse 5. Verse 8, Ham, and then verse 17, Shem. And it gives the descendants. And if you remember back when we were in our second study talking about Genesis, remember the first study was an overview of our uh, study. When we looked at Genesis in our second study, we, when we got to chapter 5, we took, and, and we took each of those three sons and broke down and looked how uh, they spread throughout the, the earth. And all the races come from Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We saw that. So when you read on through here, those are some things that you pick up as you read through there. And then when you get on to um, chapter, or continuing that chapter one, you get on down to verse, um, uh, later on in the chapter down there, verse about 20 something, you see, um, um, excuse me, verse 27, you see Abram or Abraham. And then you read on through and you see it gets to the point of all his descendants. It lists the sons of David in chapter three. But then it backs up in chapter 4, going back to Judah, to the 12 tribes. So you see the, the sons of Judah in chapter 4. And then in chapter 5, you see the sons of Reuben and 6, Levi, and so on and so forth. It gives the descendants of all those sons. So these, uh, are, these uh, genealogies are very important because I'll give you some references at the end of the study, but they tie us in from the Old Testament people to the New Testament people. And when you follow that genealogy, you'll see how the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, from Mary, his mother, you trace her back uh, all the way to uh, Adam. Then from uh, Joseph, who was not Jesus' biological father, he was what we would call his foster father or whatever, because he and he, and, he you know, uh, Jesus was conceived of the Holy Ghost, uh, but it traces Joseph's line back also. So anyway, it's very, these are very important. So when you get to read through the, the names and you think they're not important, uh, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it's all important. And so there's a lot of good things in the, uh, in the genealogies that you can read over, and you can find a lot of things in there if you'll just dig in there. Like, like the, the Bible says in the book of uh, Proverbs, talks about in chapter 2, digging and finding gold. And that's exactly what you do when you dig in the Scripture, wherever it may be. You can never waste time reading Scripture. I mean, it's going to be there. It's going to be, it's going to be something that will be in your mind. When you read over it, there's always going to be a recall one day. You, it's always a wise investment of time to read Scripture. So you get to chapter 10. And it mentions, it picks up Saul from the very last, from that last battle that he's in, in verse 1, where they're in a battle with the Philistines, chapter 10, verse 1. And you read through about his death there and how his life ended very sad. And it describes about his life in verse 13 and 14, how Saul died for his transgression, which he committed against the Lord, verse 13. Then we pick up in chapter 11 through chapter 29. And this is the reign of King David. Again, this, this is parallel with 2 Samuel. 
as you read through uh, the reign of King David in, second, in the account in 2 Samuel. And so you begin, though, in chapter 11 and chapter 12, and you see um, some things listed uh, in these chapters that are not listed or, or that are not seen in, in detail like they are in 2 Samuel. Look down at verse 4. Now, this might be seen there, but I just want to look at this right now. And David and all Israel went to Jerusalem, which is Jebus or Jebus, however you want to pronounce that, J, but Jebus, where the Jebusites were, the inhabitants of the land. So uh, we looked at when we talked about in 2 Samuel a couple of weeks ago how David, remember, he bought the he bought the piece of land that's basically the Temple Mount from a Jebusite uh, listed in the man's name. And so uh, this was that's what Jerusalem was originally called because the Jebusites lived there. But then when, when God told David, this is your city, this is your land, uh, the name was changed to Jerusalem, city of peace. Uh, is what Jerusalem means. And so uh, chapter 11, chapter 12, you see some, um, see some details about some of David's army. Uh, you read through chapter 11, especially when you pick up uh, about verse 20, but then they start, then names start going back to back, starting about verse 27. It just names them back to back there. And then you get to chapter 12, and it names um, David's soldiers, and some of them are what are called his mighty men. And we'll come back to that in our study in just a little bit. So then you get to chapter 13 through chapter 16, and you see how David... Um, it's interesting because if you read these next several chapters, 13 to 16, you see that phrase, the ark, the ark of the covenant, uh, the ark of our God, the ark of God, the ark of the God, the Lord. You see that uh, several times in these chapters. And David, unlike King Saul, had a great reverence for the ark of the covenant. Um, he wanted it to be back in Jerusalem where it belonged. He wanted it to be in its proper place um, in the, um, the tabernacle. Uh, sometimes it's called the temple before the temple was built simply because the tabernacle, um, they were no longer traveling through um, the wilderness. When they traveled through the wilderness, they carried you know, the tabernacle from place to place. But it was called a, a temple, even though it wasn't a permanent temple, because the tabernacle was set up once they were in the land. Um, it was quote-unquote permanently. It was permanently till the temple was built. But you see in these chapters David's great reverence for the Ark of the Covenant. And then you find in here how there was uh, where they were, they put the Ark of God on a new cart, which was against what the Old Testament uh, law was for them to do, the priests, what they were to do. And it says that's in chapter 13. We actually looked at this in 2 Samuel, so we won't go into a lot of time with it. But there was a man who touched the, the Ark whenever it was on that on that uh, cart where it shouldn't have been in the first place. And he probably with, with the best of intentions, there was a, a, a bump or something and thought the ark was going to fall off and he stuck his hand up there. And when he did, the Bible says that he was struck dead. Only the priests were to touch the ark of the covenant. And so the Bible tells us that David had got upset with the Lord about that. It said, um, look at verse 10 through verse 12. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. That was the man's name and smote him because he put his hand to the ark and there he died before God. And David was displeased because the Lord had made a breach upon Uzzah. Wherefore that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day, a, a breach of Uzzah, verse 12. And David was afraid of God that day saying, how shall I bring the ark of God home to me? So he reverenced it. He, he unlike King Saul and unlike really the, uh, those during the times of the judges before them, he reverenced the Ark of the Covenant. He knew the special meaning that it had. It was the place where God met with his people. 
um, in, in the temple there, the, um, or the tabernacle before the temple, the high priest would go in to that whole, uh, most holy place, the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, uh, was sitting. And once a year, he would go in and he would take uh, the atonement for the nation of Israel. He would take that blood and put it on top of the ark, on the mercy seat. And uh, if you remember a few years, a couple years back, well, I think it was right before or during, might have been during, uh, right after we started back meeting after COVID, we looked at the, um, we, we studied the tabernacle and talked about the importance of the Ark of the Covenant. So when you read through those chapters, David has a very high esteem, high regard, love for the Ark of the Covenant, and he brought it back where it should be. And uh, that was uh, definitely another, uh, you know, just another evidence that David was definitely a man after God's own heart. Then you get to chapter 17, and we looked at this in 2 Samuel also. But this is where David had a great desire to see the, um, the temple built. He had, a, he had a dream. He had a great desire. He had a, a goal to, to see um, the, the uh, temple built there in Jerusalem where it belonged and so um, Nathan comes to him at first. He says, do all that is in your heart. But then God spoke to Nathan and told him. Nathan was a prophet for David. And then he, tell, he told him, he said, David, because you've been a man of war, he said, you're not going to be able to build uh, the temple, but your son will. So sometimes a very good dream or goal in our life, uh, we may not be able to fulfill in our life, but maybe someone behind us will. Um, there are a lot of... Uh, there are a lot of pastors and evangelists and missionaries over the years that have started a work, and then after God called them home, someone else comes in and takes over, and God just booms and grows that thing greatly um, because they had a goal, a dream. They did a lot of footwork. They did a lot of hard work, and they, they served the Lord, but maybe it's after they're gone that the Lord does. Many of the, many of the places on the mission fields uh, from back in the late 1800s through the, through the, uh, the tw into the 20th century where there were missionary endeavors that began, uh, a lot of the blood, sweat, and tears that our missionaries put in to their work, later on there was a reward uh, reaped and, and fruit reaped because of their hard work. So in the same way, David had a great desire, great vision, great goal, great dream to build the, um, to, to, to build the temple, and yet he did not, but his son was able to do that. Then you get to uh, chapter... Um, 21, we'll skip over to that. Well, actually, I'll tell you what, back, back up for just a moment to, to chapter 20 and verse 1. In 2 Samuel chapter 11 is where we read about the, the, the horrible sin of David with Bathsheba and then, of course, having her husband put to death, all that, all that you know, entangled and entailed with that. But look what's mentioned in the parallel of it in 1 Chronicles 20. And it came to pass after the year was expired at the time that the kings go out to battle. Sounds very similar to Second Chronicles, I mean, excuse me, Second Samuel 11. Joab led forth the power of the army and wasted the country of the children of Ammon and came and besieged Rabbah. But David tarried at Jerusalem and Joab smote Rabbah and destroyed it. That's all that's said. David's sin is not included in First Chronicles. Isn't that interesting? Uh, although 2 Samuel goes into great detail, and then we see how David got his heart right with God, got all that right with God, but for whatever reason. So it just shows you that when the Holy Spirit had different, you know, the different writers to write, some things he wanted included in some places, some things he did not. It makes us study the Scripture more and have a greater desire and love for it. And, but you read on down through there, and you see how David went into battle with the relatives of Goliath. He ended up having to face those other giants too. His army faced the other giants too.
Chapter 21, David falls into a temptation, um, I guess through kind of his heart was lifted up through pride in um, numbering the children of Israel. The Bible says that Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel in chapter 21. And so um, he, um, he did something that was kind of prideful. And because of that, the Lord uh, gave him a choice of what would happen to falling out of that. And David chose one of the three. And then in doing so, God even then held back what he could have, uh, he could have uh, brought greater destruction, yet he held it back. And then when you finish out chapter 21, you see where we looked at a couple of weeks ago where David buys the property, uh, the, uh, the piece of land from a man named Ornan in uh, chapter 21, verse 18 down to the end, and buys the, the land that would end up being where the, the temple mount is located, um, where the temple was uh, built by Solomon. And then, of course, uh, later on was built after that was destroyed uh, before Jesus was born, the next temple was built. Um, actually, the third one, because Ezra and Nehemiah build one after it was destroyed. So when you get to chapter 22 to 29, you see where even though he was not going to build the temple, David uh, made great preparation of it. He, um, he, he, he took, and, um, he took and, and put everyone in, uh, listed them in what you might call companies or armies uh, of people to work together. And he, um, all through those chapters, they get kind of long, but it, it mentions the, um, the battles that they had even during this time. It also mentions um, the children of all the different tribes and the tribes of Israel and all their rulers. David kept uh, everything in order in the, in the kingdom. David was, uh, he was a man of war. He had to be, but yet he was a man after God's own heart. And again, his great love for the, uh, for the Ark of the Covenant and for desire to build the temple. And so we read on through to the end of that, uh, chapter 29, he even had a lot of the um, materials ready to, uh, to see the Ark built. So that ends out uh, 1 Chronicles as a parallel with 2 Samuel. Let's look at some things a little deeper about this. So 1 and 2 Kings give the perspective of Israel, the northern kingdom. And we'll see that again when we get to 2 Chronicles. But um, that's when the kingdom uh, is under Solomon, David's son, and when it ends up, ends up dividing after Solomon dies. 1 and 2 Chronicles give the perspective of Judah, the southern kingdom. It gives a viewpoint. So again, like I said, you see different viewpoints um, from, these, from the two uh, the books as they're written, rather, excuse me, the two different viewpoints. One is from the northern tribes and the other is from the southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And First and Second Chronicles are written from that perspective. Chapters 1 to 9. So we talked about the, um, the genealogies. And when you go back to, if you want to just write these down, I'll, I'll, I'll say them out loud for those that may be listening. But uh, these compare with the uh, genealogy found in the chapters 1 through 9 especially the first couple chapters, but Genesis 5, of course, uh, lists all, the, um, all those from Adam all the way to Noah and his sons. And you see that repeated, we saw in chapter 1 a moment ago, in part of that chapter. Ruth chapter 4, verse 18 to 22, we, were in, uh, we looked at Ruth a few weeks back. In that, in that place, it, it uh, records where there's the birth of um, uh, Ruth and... Um, and her husband, Ruth and Boaz, have you know, their son. And then it lists all the way to David, even though that was way before um, the time of King David because Ruth was basically his grandmother. So um, whenever Ruth is written, uh, Samuel, who wrote 1 Samuel, 
um, he writes um, and, and gives us those details uh, about, about Ruth and about her descendants. So those tie in with Matthew 1, verse 1 to 17, and Luke 3, verse 23 to 28, because it goes back and shows us in the genealogy of Jesus, it shows us where Ruth is in there. It shows us all the way back to Adam in Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 3 goes all the way back to Adam. So genealogies are very important. They put Scripture together. They show us how it's all uh, put together, uh, like taking pieces of puzzle and put them together where it all makes sense. So it was written to Israel um, under Saul. Well, he's only found in chapter 10, of course, we talked about. That was his death. But it's written um, under King David, uh, under his leadership. And again, there are details that aren't found in, in 1 Chronicles. They're found in 2 Samuel and vice versa. So some of the lessons learned. One of the lessons we learned from all those kings was uh, later on, but also from David, the best of God's people fail and fall short. Somewhere, somehow, we're human. We all do. Um, and so that certainly was true of David. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so that's not only true in the fact of showing us that we're all sinners, but the fact that we all do fail. We do fall short of God's glory. And David was no exception. David had his faults and failures. Uh, and he disobeyed God at times, but he was indeed a man after God's own heart. And he loved God greatly. And uh, we see places like with the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, remember when we talked about, uh, back in 2 Samuel a couple of weeks ago, when we talked about uh, Mephibosheth. Remember how he brought him into the, into the palace and he basically adopted him and treated him as a king's son. And the beautiful picture of grace found there. Um, the tune-up in First Chronicles, we are, we are led best by godly leadership, and that was true of David. Even his mistakes he made, David, uh, his godly leadership was very important uh, for them as a nation. And uh, for a while under Solomon, we saw that until Solomon began to worship idols that, that uh, brought him into uh, defeat spiritually. And also, people thrive under godly leadership. Let's look at a couple of references in the Proverbs about this, and then we'll... Look at some other takeaways, some other tune-ups in uh, First Chronicle. Uh, yeah, First Chronicles, uh, Proverbs fourteen, and verse number thirty-four. Righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. That ought to be written on every government building, federal, local, and state government building in this country. Uh, it ought to be on the UN out there, brightly shining. <laughs> Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach. To any people. Chapter 28, verse number 15. There's another one. As a roaring lion and a ranging bear, so is a wicked ruler over the poor people. So this shows the opposite of that truth, how people thrive under godly leadership, but they do not under bad leadership. Chapter 29, verse 12. If a ruler hearken to lies, all his servants are wicked. So uh, these verses bear out the importance of, of good leadership, godly leadership especially. And David was an example uh, to us of godly leadership. Let's look at four, uh, three things found in here. And one of them is not seen uh, very much, in, uh, or two of them are not seen in 2 Samuel. One of them is, but we're going to look at, look at it, uh, go back and look at it. Go with me back to chapter 4. In the heart of uh, the genealogy, this is one of those little jewels there that you can dig out, some gold you can dig out in a genealogy. It lists about a man named Jabez. Look at chapter 4 with me in verse 9 and 10 of 1 Chronicles. 1 Chronicles 4, verse 9. 
And Jabez was more honorable than his brethren. So he is a descendant, uh, apparently, in the tribe of Judah. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, it mentions this man by name, and his name's Jabez. It doesn't say anything more about him as far as um, you know his dad, but it does say something very interesting about him here. And Jabez was more honorable than his brethren. So uh, however many brothers he had, of all of them, he was one that was seen as more honorable. They looked up to him. Others looked up to him. And his mother called his name Jabez, saying, Because I bear him with sorrow. So his name means uh, sorrow, uh, apparently. Uh, but yet he was a man that was, um, he was very, very well thought of. He was more honorable even than his brothers. And even though he was, he was uh, born in a time of sorrow, at least for his mother, Look at verse 10 and look, at the, look what Jabez asks God to do for him. And Jabez called on the God of Israel. And so the parallel to that would be what we think of simply as New Testament salvation. He believed on the Lord. Uh, he called on the God of Israel. And this is what he said in his prayer when he prayed to God. Oh, that thou wouldst bless me indeed. And so, you know, as, as believers, we, we want God's blessing and uh, sometimes we feel like we're not getting it. Maybe we're not praying for God's blessing. Are we, not, are we praying for God's blessing? And so he asked that God would bless him, and then he, tell, then he makes it specific. You know, sometimes in our praying, we just pray sometimes kind of generally. But when we're specific with God, specific prayer gets specific answers. And so he was very specific in what, in what he wanted from God. And enlarge my coast, that is the borders of his land, of where he, where he uh, lived, where he dwelled from, from um, his family. And that thine hand might be with me. That is a great thing to pray. Lord, let your hand be with me. Now we know that in the New Testament, as believers, the Holy Spirit lives within us. We're, when we're saved, the Bible says that we're you know, indwelt by our Savior, of course, through the Holy Spirit. But he says that, that, was, um, that thy hand might be with me. Um, and that's more than just um, his presence, it's his protection and his guidance. And so that should always be a prayer for us that we would have the hand of God's guidance in our life and whatever we do, uh, seeking his will for our lives, the things that, that we need from him, the things we, that we ask and desire of him uh, and serving him. That thou wouldst keep me from evil. There's protection again, and he's more specific about it there. That, Lord, keep me from evil. Um, Jesus taught his disciples to pray in Matthew 6, the disciples' prayer, um, to, to, uh, that, that God to ask God to deliver me from evil and from our, from our uh, enemy, from our adversary, uh, Satan. Keep me from evil and that it may not grieve me. And so these things were prayed by this man named Jabez. He's only seen here, but the Bible gives us this great encouraging conclusion to his prayer or after his prayer, and God granted him that which he requested. And we studied um, two weeks ago in First Kings, we talked about Elijah. He was a man of great power, but the Bible says he was a man of like passions like us. And we may not call down fire like Elijah. We may not do some of the things Elijah did, but when it comes to praying, folks, he's no different from us. He was human. He had his failures and faults. And so uh, God looks on the heart, and that's what he did with Jabez as well as what he did with um uh, when when um, um, when when Elijah prayed, also. All right, let's go to another one. Go to First Chronicles twelve. Now, this one is only found in um, First Chronicles. At least this wording it says something interesting. Back up with me. We're going to be looking at verse thirty-two, but back up with me in uh, number to number twenty-three. And we're going to skip around a little bit. And these are the numbers of the bands that were ready, armed to the war. 
and came to David to Hebron to turn the kingdom of Saul to him according to the word of the Lord. So remember we said in chapter 10, Saul had died. David began to reign. And when he did, if you remember 2 Samuel, there was a lot of trouble at first. Remember Saul's son wanted to rise up and be king. And, and uh, we talked about that in 2 Samuel. And so there were, there were some battles uh, that had to take place. And it, lists, it starts listing all the tribes of Israel and how many of the men that were in David's army. For example, look at verse 24, the children of Judah that bear shield and spear were 6,800 ready armed to the war. So David had men that were loyal uh, to his leadership. And if you're going to be king, you need that. If you're going to, um, if, if you're going to be able to reign and be able to, to do what God wanted him to do over God's people, to rule over them. Look down at verse 32. And of the children of Issachar, Issachar wasn't a big tribe. Um, you, you, you think of the tribes of Judah, uh, I mean of Israel, Judah comes to mind. Levi comes to mind because those are the priests. But look at verse 32. And of the children of Issachar, which were men that had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do, the heads of them were 200, and all their brethren were at their commandment. Now, if you look down through, look, read down through there, you'll see where uh, in a lot of cases there are less of them than some of the others, especially we just read about Judah. It listed 6,000. Uh, verse 25, Simeon, 7,000. And in verse 32 here of the men of Issachar, the ones that were, were, um, were um, at David's uh, disposal of his service to help him, it, only, it says there were, about, there were 200 of them. There were not near as many. Uh, but it says, and all their brethren were at their commandment. So he had a think tank, so to speak. He had a group of men that, that did this very thing, verse 32. They were men that had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. They, were, they planned his strategies because they understood the times. Remember, David was just taking over the kingdom. And in doing so, there were those that were maybe pockets of resistance from Saul's son. There were those maybe that would turn their back on David, but very much needed men like this. And so let's look at a parallel in the New Testament. They understood the times. We need to be people of understanding of the times. What are the times that we live in? Well, one description of it is found in 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy 3. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. So the idea is when Paul writes this, in one sense as he wrote it, they were in the last days. But the last days is a description of the church age. And so when he says, in the last days, perilous times shall come, as you read through here, you understand that it gets worse from generation to generation to generation, decade after decade, century after century. So we live in times now that 10 years ago, 20 years ago, we wouldn't imagine some of the things going on now. Wouldn't even imagined it. Wouldn't even thought of things that are happening now happening. But then 20 years before that, there are a lot of things that happen. So, but look and see what Paul tells us about the last days. And it's, remember it says the men of Issachar understood the times. So Paul tells us about times. Perilous times shall come. There's the promise that it's going to happen. Verse 2, for men shall be lovers of their own selves. Right out of the box, that's the first thing he mentions. Because any and all sin ultimately goes down to, to self and selfishness. Men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, 
unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure. Look what it says there. Now, you may have a translation that says something different, but I think this is the right, I think this is very true and accurate here. Lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. Not instead of. They love God, but they love pleasure more. That's the way he describes it. So when Paul writes this, he's not talking about just the lost world. He's including Christians here. Verse 5, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such turn away. For of this sort of they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with diverse lusts, all kinds of various lusts, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And he gives an example here of his day. Now as Jannes and Jam, or excuse me, Old Testament, withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth, men of corrupt minds, reprobate concerning the faith. But they shall proceed no further, for their folly shall be manifest unto all men, as theirs also was. But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience. Persecutions, now he lists a little bit of personal things that happened to him. Afflictions, which came to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra. Those are found in the book of Acts. What persecutions I endured, but out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. I didn't include verse 13, but evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Paul says, this is what you can expect. This is what's going to happen. Now, there may be in varying degrees getting worse at times, and, and it does. But Paul says, these are the times. These are perilous times. Describes them. So as the men of Issachar were, we should be men and women of understanding, knowing what we ought to do and realizing the times. Understanding the times we're in, and a lot of cases are not going to get much better if they do. And so we have to remember that. Uh, one last thing. This is found actually in 2 Samuel, but go back to 1 Chronicles. This is the one of the three we're looking at, and then we'll close. 1 Chronicles chapter 13 gives something interesting here. We talked about David and his love for the ark. And whenever... Um, let me see... Yeah, when David had, um, remember when he got upset with the Lord after Uzzah had died? Remember he was killed because he put his hand up there in, in chapter uh, 13 right before that. It says in David, verse 12, David was afraid of God that day, saying, How shall I bring the ark of God home to me? So he was kind of, he was hurt and upset with God. And so, you know, David's a man after God's own heart. So let's be honest, folks. There are times where we may get upset with God. It's not, it's not something we recommend, but there are times we do. We have to be honest at times in our life. There are times where we may get upset with him. David did. Look what he did, though. So David brought not the ark home to himself, to the city of David. He knew it would be a sore spot for him as much as he loved the Lord, as much as he loved the ark of the covenant. But he didn't bring it back to, to Jerusalem, but carried it aside into the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of God remained with the family of Obed-Edom in his house for three months. And the Lord blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that he had. That's something. Here's a man 
who received a benefit when David was mad at God. He got a benefit for three months having the Ark of the Covenant. He's, can you imagine what that was like? You wake up in the morning, there's the Ark of the Covenant right there. It's right here, right there. Can you imagine what that for three whole months? And the Bible says that he blessed him and blessed his family. The Lord blessed him because the Ark remained there. Now, it's an unusual thing. It wasn't something that happened at any other time, but it was because David was upset with God when he should have brought it back to Jerusalem, but um, he put it in that man's house. And as a result, God blessed this man greatly through something uh, that was really not of his own making. And so many times in our life, those unexpected blessings come, and we thank God when they do, and certainly was unexpected for him. Okay, uh, let's see. I think this is, we're getting ready to close it out. So in uh, Jesus and First Chronicles, of course, he's pictured in David's life and leadership. We saw that in Second um, Samuel. He's also pictured in David's mighty men, the ones who uh, were mighty warriors. As we talked about before, and I, I'll probably repeat it again in Second Chronicles, um, this very important spiritual truth. The physical battles that they faced for physical land uh, in, in, their, in their time parallel the spiritual battles we face. Now, the Bible says we wrestle not against flesh and blood. We don't battle against people. Ours is on a spiritual level. And so because of that, Ephesians 6 tells us we have God's armor, uh, sword of the spirit. We have the, the, um, the belt of truth. We have the breastplate of righteousness. So we see spiritual parallels to the physical battles that they faced. And Jesus is pictured in all those mighty men. He is, uh, he is our warrior. We looked at that actually in Joshua. We, we saw where he's captain of the Lord's hosts. Three uh, verses, home address, to take, to take home and to remember. In chapter 5, verse 20, we see, uh, let me back up to that, um, where, uh, get back here to it. It's in the, um, it's in the um, chapters on the genealogy. And it says, in chapter 5, and there's a battle going on in, um, among some of the, the tribes there in Israel. And it mentions that verse 18, those that were skill, skillful in war, um, made war, uh, verse 19, with some of the enemies, the Hagarites. Verse 20, and when they were helped against them, and the Hagarites were delivered into their hand, and all that were with them, for they cried to God in the battle, and he was entreated of them because they put their trust in him. There are times we go through battles in our life. We just need to stop and cry out to the Lord. Lord, I need your presence. I need your, your power. I know you're here, but I need to, to have your presence in a real way. I need your power in this battle that I'm facing. Uh, we saw in chapter 12, verse 32, understanding the time, so we'll skip over that one. But in chapter 17, when David wanted to build the, he wanted to build the um, uh, temple, and he sat down before the Lord, it says, and in verse um, 16, And David the king came and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that thou hast brought me hitherto? Sometimes it's, it's good to just sit down and do a spiritual evaluation inventory. Lord, you know, who am I? You're, you, I don't deserve what you give me. I don't deserve how you bless me. But I thank you that you do, and I thank you that I belong to you. So we'll end there tonight with First um, Chronicles, and Lord willing, next week we'll be in Second Chronicles uh, next week. Now, Second Chronicles is a repeat of the events in 2 Kings. So what we're going to do, um, if you were here last week or if you listened to the podcast, last week we went through real quick all those kings found in 2 Kings, both for Israel, the northern, and Judah, the southern. But what we're going to do next week is we'll look at some things that are in 2 Chronicles that aren't in 2 Kings, and we'll highlight the about eight, seven or eight good kings of Judah and look a little bit more at them. We, we kind of skipped over them last, I mean, skimmed over them a little bit last week 
Uh, but we'll look into them a little bit more, Lord willing, next week and talk about them. So we won't go through each of those kings again. I know they got a little lengthy last time, but we'll just look at the seven or eight that were the good kings. All right? Anything before we close? Any questions or anything before we close tonight? A lot of practical stuff in First Chronicles. The only thing that bothers me about uh, Ark of the Covenant being in Bedded Dolan's or whoever it was house and God blessing him is because I believe that the Catholics, not how many other people have taken that and, just, you know, kept relics. Right, right. Bones and relics. Right. This was a piece of the cross. Right, yeah. All of that. Just, right. They almost worship that idol. Yeah, that's true. But the good thing is he only had it for three months, so... Yeah. And then it was taken. Yeah, yeah. So. and it was only one. Right. One right, exactly. Just one. All right, very good. Anything else? All right, let's stand and pray and we'll dismiss. Lord, we'll see you Sunday for Resurrection Day. Looking forward to Sunday. Lord, I'm grateful for time to, in your, uh, to be in your word tonight. Thank you, Lord, for what we learned uh, in the uh, life of King David and the others that we looked at tonight in First Chronicles. Lord, your word is so rich and so deep. There's so much in there. And sometimes times like this where we look at some highlights, we can see some things we can go back and, and maybe pick up and expand on a little bit more in, in our own personal reading. And I pray that you'll, uh, above and beyond all this, Lord, give us a deeper hunger for your word and growing, drawing close to you. And to know this is the way that you speak to us is through your word. And um, you want us to know your wonderful love letter that you, you gave to us uh, and, and to um, read and apply and to draw closer to you through it. Thank you for that, Lord. I pray that you'll keep us safe as we leave from here tonight. We ask it in Jesus' name.